Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Zane Morris. It's June 15th, 2023. We're at Nicholson Library at Linfield University, McMinnville. Zane, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, the first question, let's get things started. Why wine? That is, yeah, a lot to think about. But um, yeah, I started out in music and kind of fell into wine um, through that and traveling there. And I was like, wine's really cool. There's something fun going on there. Um, and originally, I had uh, sought out to be a music educator. So I did an undergraduate degree at Portland State in music education, um, and then left to go to London for a year and do my master's in research. So I did curriculum research um, for music educators. And through that process, I was lucky to be traveling a lot as a musician. And so my first time actually having like real red wine was in Argentina, in Mendoza, while like being on tour somewhere. And I was like, there's something really cool here that's going on. And then um, my choir director at that time in college was a big wine guy. And he was just like, you know, we have like really good wine in Oregon at home. And I was like, really? That's really fun. Um, and so came closer to the end of my undergraduate degree, came back from traveling a bit and was just like, okay, let's see what's going on here. Just as like as a hobby, um, as most of us get into things. Um, and then left to go to London for a year. And London's obviously a great hub for distribution, so there's just lots of fun wine flowing around in London. So I got to try some stuff while I was there, but uh, it was mostly focused on research and graduate studies, thankfully. Um, but then I finished that degree in January of 2020, which was not an amazing time to start looking for like a long-term career. Um, and so March of 2020 kind of came around um, and I had been applying for a bunch of jobs, trying to get a research uh, job, music job, and then that just kind of stopped. <laughs> and the place I was teaching closed, and it was like, okay, well, like, what do I do for the next like couple of weeks <laughs> while COVID was like starting? Um, and so I took my W set because I was just like, hey, this would be a fun thing. I was a teacher, wanted to learn all the time, um, and so it was just an opportunity to learn something new for a bit. Um, and I never looked back <laughs> at education after that. Um, once I did that W set, I immediately was like, how do I get into wine and like work in wine for a little bit just for fun and see if I like it. Um, and I kind of went on a tour of the industry from there. And I worked retail for a bit as a wine buyer. I worked in distribution for a little bit as a sales rep. And then I found myself working harvest in 2020, which not only was like the COVID harvest, but also the wildfire harvest. Um, and I had no context for what harvest was like. And I kind of jumped in the deep end on what like the ultimate complex harvest would be. Um, and so I worked at a very large facility, 12th and Maple in Dundee for that first harvest. Harvest, um, and kind of got a big snapshot of just what harvest in the industry kind of looked like and that had been after doing some other things so um, after that I was like okay I really want to like make a career out of this and kind of try to find my way in which um, at that point alongside my music career I was also doing a lot of marketing um, and graphic design and photography and things that supported um, my friends who are working musicians and um, a lot of the groups I traveled with I was usually like the marketing officer for those groups and um, got to work on like some Grammy campaigns and some really fun like big marketing projects and I've kind of always had that in like the back pocket of things that I've been like looking at as career options and 
um, when wine kind of popped up, it was just the perfect mix of a bunch of things because um, it's agriculture, it's local. I'm born and raised in Oregon. My family has had a farm since the 60s. Um, we've always had like family businesses and that's very much the heart of like Oregon wine specifically is family owned and operated. And so it just kind of seemed like this like odd amalgamation of like all the things at once. And so I said, well, let's find like a job in marketing at a winery after that harvest. And so that's when I started working at Apollonia Vineyards up in Forest Grove. Um, and I worked there for just under two years as their marketing and events person, uh, which was amazing. It was just like opening the floodgates of being in the industry and lots of networking and learning the industry from the ground up. And um, that's also where I started my own label, Z Wines, um, as like a kind of a side project. Because after working my first harvest, when I got a new job, I was like, hey, I know I'm going to be in the marketing team, but like, can I also help out with harvest? Like, I'm really passionate about getting my hands dirty and like being a part of the whole like operation. And so I worked 21 and 22 harvests for Apple on top of my marketing duties. Um, and in 21, I was like, well, I really enjoyed making wine in 2020. Could I make some of my own wine? It would be kind of fun. And I thought about that like in October and I was like, well, that's not like how this like system works. Uh, you got to like think of this for like a while and figure it out. And so then I set my eyes on 2022 as like a year to kind of kick off something of my own. Um, and so I was really lucky that with my connections at Apple, I was able to get fruit secured for 2022. Um, I brought in like a ton and a half total, which now seems like the tiniest amount I could possibly ever bring in, but it felt gigantic at the time. Um, and so I kind of fell into wine through all these different random things and um, it ended up being the perfect industry for me. It just kind of fit all the skills that I collected over my education. And um, as much as I really loved teaching and I was really good at teaching, it was just never the same like satisfaction of like that I've got through wine because there's so much variety and I'm a person that like if I had to do like one job, like sit and do one task for the rest of my life, like it would, I would just be miserable. And I kind of fell into that in teaching where I was like, okay, it's the same thing repetitiously over a long amount of time. And I was like, this is going to drive me insane. Um, and I learned that like kids were not my favorite thing in the world either. And I was like, I'm a little bit far down this path um, to turn around, um, which is why I fell into research <laughs> and helping other teachers teach kids instead of directly teaching kids. Um, and I kind of had a great time with the work I was doing in research, but just never the same as like when I fell into wine. I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is great. Like I don't feel like I'm working. I really feel like I'm just having a great time creating products and things that support all the activities like concerts and all those fun like social gatherings like wine's a major part of that and that's also like kind of the ethos behind Z wines is that those wines are not necessarily made for like the collector they're made for the person that's actually going to drink them um, and when I was kind of thinking about how I wanted to start my own label I was just like well what do you make and there's the the privilege of not having your own estates that you can choose whatever is available and so I started with wines that I knew my friends would want to drink because those are the people that like, I actually thought would buy them. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, like, let's start there and work our way backwards. Because um, being a marketing person, it's often that you're like, winemaker says, hey, we made this X amount of dollar bottle of Pinot. Like, that's what we have to sell. And then you work on that end of things where I was just like, well, if I'm on this marketing side, what are the, what are the gaps I'm seeing? What wines are we not creating? What price points are we not like catering to, and then I worked my way backwards from there. Then what fruit do I get? How much should it be so I can get to where I want to be at the other end? Um, 
which is a lot harder than it sounds because <laughs> wine is obviously expensive to make um, and trying to make things that are affordable but still like made of quality and I have kind of the, the, the preference for things that are sustainably made, um, usually low intervention, minimal commercial additives, um, kind of what would fall under like a natural wine category. Um, and those are sometimes difficult wines to make because you're spending a lot of money on higher quality materials to then make those wines with less additions. And so um, trying to find the way to make those high quality wines at a good price point that are still approachable because those wines can be so unapproachable sometimes for people. And like my friends really don't care about what random tiny vineyard, like one row of one varietal that's been planted that no one knows about. And like people sometimes really don't care about that stuff. They just want good wine that like tastes good, but it's also like made sustainably, which is somehow a very difficult Venn diagram to build sometimes. Um, and that's why I've just continued to kind of fall in love with wine in the industry specifically is that, that story problem. I love solving problems and, and that was part of the thing that got me into research and um, yeah, and, and that's kind of what I'm working towards now with my brand and looking at um, my second harvest now and um, been signing contracts, all that stuff, it's springtime, so uh, it's that time of the year and trying to really go in with strategic mindset of how we get to that goal, obviously like, it's really hard to make affordable wines at a small like production level. And so the other goal is figuring out what the long term looks like to make things more affordable and like what the five, 10 year harvest plan looks like to start building towards things. But um, yeah, it's kind of a roundabout way of why wine, but <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's kind of the weird amalgamation of things is um, I just kind of, it kind of happened to me in the best way possible, so. That's a fairly common refrain we hear, so I don't think that's gonna fall on, fall on people who are not, not used to hearing it. Um, so let's talk about, before we talk more about wine, uh, let's talk about kind of, um, you mentioned obviously music as kind of the first, the first place. So tell us about kind of the music path for you, the music journey and how you got kind of into touring slash marketing slash all of that. Yeah, so, I started doing music at a very, very young age, um, probably like eight or nine is when I started doing like music lessons and things. Um, I just kind of immediately attached to it. I did a lot of things as a kid, but music was kind of always the thing. Um, and pretty much all of my extracurriculars until like graduating college were music related. Um, I started playing piano and I was also a trumpet player for a long time. Um, I did lots of like music summer camps, like that was my whole life growing up was music. Um, and closer to high school, I started switching to voice stuff. So I started taking voice lessons um, and looking down that path. And when I was applying for college, there was kind of the break of, I had a scholarship to musical theater school or a scholarship to go do education. Um, I ended up choosing education, it was closer to home. It was gonna be much more affordable. Um, so I was set out to go to Portland State for music education. Well, originally voice performance and you become a music education major later on in the process. Um, and that's where I got into the Portland State choir system. Uh, and the Portland State Chamber Choir is the top choir in that system. Um, and that's the group that travels. And so um, my Late in my junior, early in my junior year is when I uh, made it into that group. There's like six different choirs that you have to work your way up through. Um, and I got into the chamber choir and then went to Bali that summer for a competition, um, which was amazing. Somewhere I never thought I would get to go. Um, spent a couple weeks in Bali and then um, 
in that process, we did lots of like concerts and fundraisers and things all across Oregon. So there was also lots of like winery touch points across there too. Um, but then uh, my summer, my senior year, we went to Argentina, um, and that was like right at the beginning of when I started in, in getting interested in wine. Um, and then we went, uh, since our director was a big wine guy, he was like, hey, we're going to do a vineyard tour while we're in Argentina because we were kind of all over the place and we were in Chile and then we flew over to Argentina and we were in like Mendoza and we were driving around all these different places and he's just like, oh yeah, on this one drive when we're driving down to Mendoza, we're going to stop at this vineyard and like have lunch. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, that sounds kind of fun. Um, and so we stopped there and it was just like, oh, wineries are really cool. I'd never been to like an actual winery at that point and I just like knew wine was like a thing, like a product that existed. And um, kind of seeing that firsthand and to have it being like in Mendoza of all places where I'm like oh I didn't know like this was something I had at home <laughs> like um, usually you know about like a booming industry that happens in your own backyard but um, I just was blissfully unaware <laughs> of wine um, and so getting that experience was just kind of like eye-opening I was like oh let's put this experience like back in uh, the back pocket to refer to later but it was it was really cool and that was um, like halfway through our trip and I think almost all of us had bought a case at that winery and so the whole rest of the trip it was just like oh like swapping bottles and like all these things and it was really fun and um, we just had the best time at this little random family-owned winery in Mendoza which I always remind myself I need to figure out the name of the place because we there's like there were about 30 of us on this trip and every like few months we just go do you guys anyone remember the name of that place because we all had this like really great memory there but none of us can remember the name of the place and no one has the bottles anymore because some of our friends also like snuck bottles back into the states they're like we're gonna bring a bunch of wine back and i was like uh we drank it all before we came back um but yeah it was just this kind of like landmark wine memory that kind of tipped off a bunch of stuff but um, yeah, and then after that trip is I moved to London a week after I got back from Argentina. And so that was also kind of like the end of my Portland State chapter and going to grad school. Um, and so in grad school, I, I studied research, but um, I went to Royal College of Music, which is like one of the best music schools in the world um, for performers. And I was then the six person research program that no one knew existed. Um, and um, it was in conjunction with Imperial College London, which is a big uh, medical science school. Um, and I studied uh, health for musicians, so my specialty in undergrad, which I got licensed in, was called body mapping. So I did preventative health, um, like physical therapy type things for musicians. Uh, about 80 plus percent of musicians suffer from an injury in their professional careers um, due to like mistraining or not understanding the origin of a movement that they do repetitively. Um, and so often I was helping people that had like long-term like chronic pains in different areas because of how they use their instrument or how they perform um, and a lot of that has to do with just training how movement happens in the first place and so I took that and instead of getting a master's in teaching I went to do research to then help create new curriculum to help prevent some of these issues um, and so I was on this very very small research team in London in like the basement classroom that no one ever went into and we met once a week for lectures and um, I kind of had free reign to kind of run around and do other stuff the rest of the week and um, I spent a lot of time in theaters because they have the lovely West End, which is the Broadway of England. And um, I just spent so much time like absorbing art and culture the whole time I was there. And by the time I was getting close to moving home and wrapping up and finishing my dissertation and all that good stuff, I was kind of 
originally had sought out to do a PhD there as well. Um, and about halfway through, it was just like, hey, if you want to do this topic, you're going to have to do like two years of like neuroscience classes. Like, does that interest you? And it's like, no, I don't want to do that. And it kind of set me down the like rethinking, not like rethinking my whole life choices, but kind of like, well, what is next if the PhD isn't next? And um, spending so much time immersing myself in like the arts and culture just kind of gave me the the set like the the playing field to rethink all those things and then the pandemic immediately happened and I was like okay cool I don't know what I want to do with my life the pandemic's happening the world's ending like careers are over um, and I was like well what do we do um, and that's kind of where music started to kind of taper off and I had done some cooler um, like tours and things near the end. I got to sing back up for Josh Groban for like a month doing some like a mini like Northwest tour, which was really fun. And that was all wineries too, which was another kind of like touch point for wine. Um, my best friend and I who are on this tour together were like, well, they don't need us for like two hours. We're gonna go tasting. Like we're all, all these cool wineries. Like what are we doing? Um, and so that was another like kind of touch point right before, right, like literally right before COVID. This would have been like a few months before COVID started. Um, and it was just like, oh, cool, like more random wine touch points, which is then what prompted when everything kind of fell apart for me. I was just like, well, what do we do? And I was like, let's learn something new. <laughs> but um, the nice thing is I feel with my music career overall, like it was all really condensed. Like I did a lot in like the span of like three years after spending like 12 years training and learning and doing all these things. And I feel like significantly satisfied with like that as like a body of work and being like kind of done with that, which was interesting because at that point, like around January of 2020, like finishing my master's degree and like getting ready for like the next step of doing like research and publishing. And at that point I already published a curriculum book and done some other things. And I was like, I think I kind of did it. Like I'm done almost, which was interesting. Cause like, all through college and things, it's just like, oh, you're gonna be like, you're gonna be a professional, you're gonna be touring and doing conferences. And I got to present at a, a national conference my senior year when I published my book. And I was like, I think I did it, like it's done. Like I don't wanna, I don't think I wanna do this a million times like for the rest of my life. Um, and so when the opportunity for wine came up and it was like, oh, well, cause like obviously family members like, you just spent five years doing advanced music research and all these things, what's, what's happening here? And I was like, I think I did it. Like, I think I'm happy with what I did and produced in that time and feel more than, I don't feel like I'm throwing anything away by moving on from music specifically. And for a little while, there was some overlap. I still taught a little bit on the side just for fun and to keep things going there, but it was very minimal at best. And I was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I need this to continue to be happy with that chapter of my career. Mm -hmm. um, and it definitely informed a lot of what I'm doing now. And I built a lot of skills that kind of were like these ancillary skills that seemed really random during my music time. And um, a lot of that was also being like a third generation photographer in my family. There's been lots of photography and creative um, people in my family. And so that's just always been like a through line with everything is that those skills were there and that's something that I just did for fun and I did like my mom and I would just go like take pictures on the weekends and do things. Um, and so having all those skills kind of build and support all the things I've done just kind of made sense with like the next chapter. You're like, oh, I'm not like necessarily doing anything completely different. It's just a different like context. It's like all the same things. Um, Cause like through college, I did all of my friends like recital posters. I did all of their like headshots and um, all those things and then 
when the opportunity to do some marketing work came up, I was the marketing officer for a couple student organizations for a few years and um, slowly learned PR and things like that through, through those opportunities. And then um, with Chamber Choir, there was a lot of high level opportunities that we were involved in. And me as a random college student, being like the marketing person for the choir seemed a little ridiculous at some points, but um, it was just like, I'm literally sending a press release about like the Grammys, like what's going on? I'm like 12 years old, it feels like. Um, and so I got like a lot of these crazy opportunities through this music experience that supported all these other skills. And so when I kind of like reconciled like the resume, I was just like, well, what skills do I actually have? Um, and then research is a skill that really kind of goes across all industries as well. And um, right now in, in, in the industry, um, I work full-time in digital marketing uh, and I do my wines on the side. Um, and a lot of my job is reporting and analytics. And I was like, this is literally what I spent a year learning how to do, but in the context of musicians' health. Um, but it's always just weird how those things kind of like all match up in a weird way. And um, I was really lucky last last June, um, I got asked to go speak at the final assembly for my small arts high school in my hometown. Um, and they were like, hey, can you talk about like how you use the arts in your career? I was just like, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all art. Like it's all been a part of everything. Um, and those skills that like, having an eye for design and all these things really can push you through almost anything. Because um, when I was studying art in high school, um, I did a lot of like fine art photography in my junior senior year of high school and um, did all the like the classic art awards, all that fun stuff. Um, and a lot of that time it's just like, oh, you should go become a studio artist, like go become a full-time photographer. And it's just like, that's not the only way to be an artist full-time. And um, I think that's the fun thing about wine too, is that there's a lot of people in wine that as you very much know, <laughs> that have had some type of either like creative career or like are engineers. I know like five winemakers that were all engineers. And so there's like that art and science balance in winemaking that really attracts people from both sides of that. And those skills transfer really well because um, there's all types of art that goes into creating like a brand and wine, but um, yeah, it's just, and I think about, like, thinking about it now, like, looking at, like, music and stuff, it's just, like, yeah, like, that time really contained itself really well and, like, got me to the next thing when I really thought that was going to be, like, the thing for the rest of my life. And that just goes to show, like, when you're, like, 20 years old, 19 years old, you don't know what's going to happen and, like, things change and it's totally okay for things to change and, like, your family's not going to disown you because you stopped doing music, like... If anything, my family like is even more involved with my career because of wine, and um, yeah, it's just it's all the things kind of add up, and for some reason that added up to wine. <laughs> well, let's talk about your kind of first sort of official foray into wine. Then you, you mentioned obviously WSET and and a harvest in 2020. So tell us, let's talk about WSET part first. Um, tell me about starting to get formal wine education. What did you what did you know, and and what did you learn? Yeah, so I went straight into the level two W set because level one's like wine, it's made from grapes. And you're like, okay, thank you so much. Um, but uh, going into level two, it was like kind of eye-opening in terms of how much like formality there is in the history of wine. And at that point, I kind of was like, oh yeah, wine is cool, wine tastes good. I know there's like some history there and that there's like this industry in Oregon that exists and around the world, but like, I remember the first time it was like, hey, here's how all the banks of Bordeaux are broken up. And like, here's all these things. And I'm like, whoa, okay, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> and um, it was very overwhelming. But um, like the goal of level two of WSET is like be able to read a label and break down what's kind of you're expecting to see in a bottle. Um, and so 
having that kind of baseline of going into just like exploring wine a bit more at that point was really key to knowing where to go next. Because I knew about Pinot Noir and I was just like, okay, well, like that can't be the only thing. Um, and who else is growing Pinot Noir around the world? And um, I was a big, big Riesling fan in the early days. Still am a big Riesling fan. My first wine was Riesling. Um, and I was like, oh, there's this whole world of like really fine, dry, elegant Rieslings in like Alsace and Germany and um, kind of fell in there. And that it kind of gave me more of a guide to fall into the world of wine versus just like the local wine community. And also like looking at fine wine versus just like the wines I see at Trader Joe's all the time, which surprisingly there's a great amount of producers that sell wine in Trader Joe's and um, that's like a great value place to explore the world of wine and that's what I tell my friends who are like I want to learn more about French wine I'm like go to Trader Joe's and like grab anything that's under ten dollars in the French section and like you'll you'll be at a great place to like learn what like the varietals actually taste like they're not gonna be super unique interesting wines but they're gonna give you like what the varietal is and um, that's kind of where I focus with my training or my education in wine, I was like, I just want to know what these things are supposed to taste like. Like, I didn't really care too much about finding the ultimate library expression of Burgundy or whatever. I was just like, what's Burgundy supposed to taste like in a general idea? Um, and that kind of guided me from there what I wanted to learn more about, which ended up being really just like dry white wines, aromatic whites were where I really was interested in things I enjoyed opening. Um, and after doing the level two, that's when I became uh, assistant manager buying wine for a fine wine shop. Uh, and I was then exposed to kind of a whole other world of some higher end, more luxury wines that I just didn't, I just didn't know existed because <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's cool. Um, and so I kind of fell into some more, more interesting, more landmark kind of producers there um, and like got to try Ridge for the first time and, and see what, like what Napa meant versus like what Oregon was. And um, it was just constantly like, it felt like there was just something new every day and you're like, oh cool, there's just new stuff. And it, it still feels like that today, even though it was like three or four years in, it's just like, okay, there's literally something new around every single corner, which for me makes it exciting. I think for some people that intimidates them and makes them like turned off to that because a lot of people want to like know everything and then move on, which is kind of how I felt with music. I like, I wanted to learn, I wanted to learn everything in like college and grad school and then do it. And, and thankfully I got the chance to do it amidst that. But um, I feel like with wine, there's just always something new to learn. And um, especially now with like, not just like the world of wine, like varietals and things, but like actual winemaking now. Like now that I've had a couple of years to really dive into what winemaking is, I'm getting a lot deeper this year, which has been really interesting. And um, I'm also a lot more hands-on in the vineyard this year. I have a really great relationship now uh, with a grower that I'm buying from this year. And they're like, hey, like let's make the farming decisions together. And for me, that's a whole new experience compared to last year where I was just happy that the fruit showed up on the crush pad last year. Um, Cause I was working like actual harvest for the winery on top of making my own wine and doing like my regular job. So I was working like, 70 hour weeks for like two months and I was just like oh thank god that fruit showed up I get to make my wine this year um whereas this year I get to be a lot more thoughtful behind that and, and have a lot more control over what the product's going to be and even though I'm very happy with like what happened in 2022 I think I'm, I'm beyond excited for what's going to happen this year um which is great and I'm producing like three or four times more than I did last year which keeps me up at night sometimes <laughs> but um yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting things going on there, but um, 
there's just so many educational opportunities that it just never stops, which I love, and that, that really keeps me going. And um, I know that's like the reason why a lot of people are in wine is because there's just so much to do. And um, I try to like, when I'm talking to my family, because my family is completely removed from the wine industry and like drinking period at all. And so um, they're like, how did this happen? Um, but it's really fun to talk to them about the industry because it's kind of like, you get to break it down in a new way. And it's just like the wine industry is its own like complete like microclimate almost or like micro economy of itself because um, you have like packaging which is its own world you have like actual farming which is its own world winemaking and then marketing and all these things and for me I thrive in that environment because there's something different to do almost every day and there's a constant like change in activity which is really great because um, as I mentioned before like if I was just sitting down like bottling wine every day for the rest of my life like I would like cry myself to sleep it would just be miserable but like once or twice a year I get to bottle it and then once or twice a year it's like visiting farms and like I'm picking fruit like it's just constantly changing and even though it has its own kind of cyclical nature it's still completely varied all the time and literally no harvest is ever the same and jumping in on my first harvest being like the wildfire COVID harvest I was like this is insane how do you guys do this like what's happening here and they're like well this is like kind of the worst like scenario we've had in quite a while and like okay and then 21 was a little early, which was like really weird because I had been asked to help with Harvest um, and I was like doing some of their marketing work and I came out to like the patio and Kevin Green, who was the winemaker at Apollonia at that time, he was just like sitting on the patio, like staring at his notebook and I was like, hey, what's, what's going on? He's like, well, we're bringing in fruit like tomorrow. Can you like help me for like a whole week? And it's just gonna be us because interns aren't here yet. Bins aren't clean. Like we just need to like start Harvest. Um, and so that was my like first harvest at like a family owned winery and then last year's harvest was like insanely late um, and so I was bottling Petten at the day after Christmas last year um, and so it was just kind of I've had three of like the weirdest harvests back to back um, and thankfully like fingers crossed the weather's looking a bit more tempered this year that's like not as like terrible but um, either way I'm expecting the unexpected as always just because the last three harvests I've experienced have been wild and it's more learning opportunities because now I understand why when things come in late or ripen late that it really like hampers some stuff in the winery because we had a lot of like hard time with whites not having enough nutrient content or not getting high enough uh, sugar content to finish fermentation that because of some of the late um, picks and things and the slow ripening and I was just like cool that's another thing I didn't know about and now I know so now in the future I can always think about that harvest and um, yeah, it's just, there's just always something you're learning, which is great too, because you never feel too confident, which is great because if you get too confident and you're making decisions too fast, like you have more chances to make mistakes. Um, and so it does keep you humble, which is awesome because especially in like the academia world I was in, there's a lot of the opposite of that where people are like, I am generating knowledge. Like when, cause that's what we talk about in research. You're like, I am creating new knowledge. Like we are, D determining facts and you're like okay that's a lot to process whereas like I feel like with wine we're kind of chasing that dream of like the fit the perfect product or the perfect wine or the perfect harvest and we never get there which is great because there's always something to work towards where um, academia just kind of turned me off that's just like I don't need to like j like create thinking like I just want to like be a part of this system of things and performing was a big part of that at first but then I found that I was much much better suited for teaching and, and kind of helping people start their own careers, um, which was great too, because that was the same thing. It's a new person, new set of circumstances, new things to help with, which kept it really varied. But 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm just a learner, period. Like, I just like to learn new things, and I'm constantly going like, oh, what's the next thing to like think about? And um, I'm the kind of person that like has to listen to like a podcast or something to go to sleep because I'm just constantly thinking about things, <laughs> and I kind of like have to actively not think about things because I just kind of like constantly go through things. Like last night, I was trying to I was like, I have this interview fairly early that I need to be up for. And I was thinking through like all my grape contracts that I'm signing and like breaking down costs again. I'm like, well, what price point am I going to be at? And it's like midnight. I'm like, okay, I need to like calm down and like go to sleep and like listen to a podcast. Um, but I do like, I think that really drives what I do. And that's what makes it possible for me to like have a regular job and do my wine on the side is that it's not like a burden to keep doing more stuff after like I log off for the day. Like I'm actively like, I need to do something. Like let's, let's go like work on emails now for um, my wines or look, look at the plan for harvest. And um, yeah, so always, always learning. We'll talk about, about the sort of the physical nature of winemaking. Tell us about harvest experiences. Uh, what appealed to you about the work? And tell me about sort of learning how to actually make wine. Yeah, so I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I signed up to do Harvest in 2020. Um, it just sounded like a fun thing to be a part of. I was like, oh, let's do this once. Like, that'll be fun. Um, and my first Harvest was at 12th and Maple, which is a very, very large facility. Um, that's a custom crush facility for a lot of like, really big brands that want to process high volumes of wine for like Costco placements, like big, big, big wine orders. Um, and so it was interesting because when I signed up for that team, normally when you work harvest like at a smaller winery, you're doing everything. Like you're sampling, you're doing, you're moving wine around, you're doing all types of stuff, you're doing cellar work and lab work. And um, when I signed on for the team, I was just assigned to an additives team. So all I did was additives, um, which is hilarious now because I am so like anti-additives that I'm like, wow, I was just dumping buckets of tannin into like gigantic vats of like really like economy per, per price Pinot Noir, um, which is, hilarious to think back on, but um, I was on a team of like six people. We were, tw we were 24 hour operation during harvest and I worked from like, it was miserable. It was like 2 a.m. to 11 a.m. It was the worst. <laughs> um, and I did that, for, it, was, it was a really short season because of the wildfires, because so much fruit got canceled. And I remember there was like four of us to the one shift and we were like standing at our table and we had like a little printer that printed out work orders from the winemakers. And we were like sitting there and like just nothing was happening. And I remember our supervisor was like, the enologist was like, hey, there's just like not going to be fruit today. We were supposed to bring in like 20 tons of Pinot and they just all canceled their picks. And you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> like what do we do? Um, and so it was a fairly short like intern season that year for a lot of us just because there wasn't necessarily a ton of volume. But um, yeah, I spent that many weeks like just doing inoculations and um, the... <laughs> To do inoculations now, I do it like in a tiny little bucket if I'm doing like a yeast app for someone. I was doing these in like gigantic like garbage bins of like doing huge inoculations. And that was like my first time like being in production stuff. So I was like, oh, this must be how all wine is made. Um, and I was like on three-story catwalks, like opening up big things of Pinot and being like, oh, that's like, that's all wine. Um, and there was a small portion of the cellar that's all like craft productions, so like two tons, lots or lower. And that's where I was like, okay, now I understand like what this actually looks like at a smaller scale. Because um, one of the producers we made wine for did like single clones of like 10 different Pinot clones that they fermented separately each year. And um, it was really cool to see that. And I was like, okay, this is like what that smaller, like more like craft romantic production looks like of making wine. And so 
when I was thinking about like the future of like maybe doing harvest again, because um, that, at that point it was like late mid November, um, and I had taken the harvest job because I was like really miserable at the job I was at previously, and I was like I don't care if I don't have a job after harvest, like I just need to get out of this job and I want to do harvest, so it makes sense just to get over into harvest. Uh, and I was like, well, if I want to do like more wine stuff, I definitely want to be like at that family level and like be closer to being a part of like the whole picture, and. Um, I think I mentioned a little bit before, but like my grandparents have a cattle farm out in Tillamook that I've just has always been a part of the family. And then my mom was a business owner while I was growing up and was an artist, like full-time artist doing like custom apparel for people. Um, and so like that family aspect of things has just kind of always been a through line across the board. And my, my grandparents not only had their farm, but they also had their own business that was attached to that too. And um, I was like, oh, there's this whole like family side of wine that makes a lot more sense for me. Um, and so once that harvest ended and I was kind of like, oh cool, that's like my little like toe dip into winemaking, that's fun. Um, and then I immediately started applying for jobs at wineries trying to get a marketing job, which a year before that I was kind of like, oh, like that would be the ideal would be to get like a marketing job, but you can't get those jobs until you have wine experience. And so I spent my time getting my wine experience um, and came back to that and got the job at Apollonian. That was, would have been January of 21, I believe, yeah. Um, and when I applied for that job, I was just like, hey, also, like, I'm open to working Harvest, if that's like a possibility, I would love to get more information and knowledge just being a part of that whole process. And as a marketing person, I was like, that's my way in to like be successful is you gotta know everything. And that's also why marketing works so well for me because I get to be a part of everything, I get to talk to everyone, and I kind of felt like the bridge between all the departments at the winery because I was the only one that was like actively talking to every single person about what they're doing and how we can market it and, and amplify what they're doing. And because as a marketer, you're just like you're a megaphone. You're just supposed to be amplifying and, and making sure people know what's going on. And um, I, I took that opportunity to kind of learn everything about everyone. Um, and so when Harvest came around in 21, um, it was like, hey, do you want to work Harvest and like help out? And I was like, absolutely. Um, and it was a super, super small team, even for like the history of how Apple had structured before. And so we were like probably like, two or three people less than we should have been that year, just because labor was super hard. And it's still a talking point for most wineries that like it's hard to find the correct labor. But that year was particularly difficult to find people, um, which is why I got roped into working Harvest. Um, and that was my first year kind of touching everything in the process, like sorting fruit, helping run the press, like doing punch downs every day and, and really getting the full picture of what that was. And it was funny because I was like, well, we got to the additive part. I was like, oh, I got this. <laughs> I was like, I can do the inoculations, guys. I got this. Uh, everything else, I was like, this is completely new to me. Um, and I totally caught the bug. I was just like, oh, this is so fun. And like getting to then look at the finished product at the end, you're like, we made that. Like we took the things and we made a thing, which is really cool. Um, and especially with like kind of the artful side of wine, like creating a product that has this unique expression of where it's from. And that was the cool thing too about then working with the state fruit versus like working as like a custom crush kind of middleman producer, um, working with tons and tons of varieties of estate fruit. And then also we did custom crush Apollonia as well. So we got to work with a bunch of other producers fruit, which was really fun to play with. And um, was also how I then was able to start doing my own wines because there was already like a custom crush setup going on. So I was like, hey, since I work here, can I also make wine here? It'd be really fun. Um, which is how kind of that, the relationship of me being able to actually start doing that at a, at a more affordable 
affordable, like, yeah, in the context of like making your first vintage of wine um, worked, because then I was able to buy in on glass orders and things that would just be astronomically more expensive if I had been like, I want like 200 cases of glass versus like being on a 5,000 case order. Um, and so that was a really big part of like getting the start to do my own wine. Um, but Kevin Green, who's the winemaker at Apollonia at the time, um, he was just a huge mentor for me in just like general winemaking. And <laughs> I'm a talker and he is not a talker. And so um, every day, like when I walk into the line, I'm like, hey, Kevin, like I have to walk past his desk and he's just like, hello, how's it going? And even though he's a very nice person and, and we're really good friends and we still hang out and do tastings together and stuff, he's just like, I understand that you need to talk. Like, tell me what you need to talk about. I'll give you some answers. Um, but the great thing was like, we had a really great relationship then in Harvest and I was just like, hey, Kevin, here's a very annoying question. Like, why is this happening? Or like, why are we doing this? Or in, in, in kind of started just asking a bunch of questions, um, which I'm sure in his head, he's like, you could just like read a book about why making it. It would like answer all these questions for you very simply. Um, and I was just like, why are we using that yeast strain? And he's just like, uh, well, because of this, this, this. And you're like, oh, cool. And so I just spent all that first harvest just asking a million questions all the time, which I knew, I, I know, I actively know because he has told me it drove him nuts um, for a, a big portion. And there were a lot of days where it's like, you cannot ask a question today. Like today is not the day. We have eight tons of fruit to bring in. We're, we're not doing questions today. Um, but I just learned so much from him. And then when I brought in my own fruit, I was able to kind of do the next step of that, which was like, here's the decisions I have made, here's my gaps and my issues, like, what do you think? Um, and so he really assisted me in making all those my first wines. Um, it was a big part of, of that first vintage, and um, sadly, we'll not be in the same facility this year, um, but yeah, we're still very much connected. I ask him a million, I text him random things all the time. It's like, hey, Kevin, if I did this and this, what do you think would happen? It's like, I don't know, like, do some research, like figure it out. Um, and I'm like, okay, fine, I'll look it up. Because um, this year has been a big year, because I'm, so the catalyst for this year, um, so due, some, due to some like business changes at Apollonia, I got laid off in January. Um, and so there was kind of this big shift in not only what to do with my career, but also what to do with my wines. Because um, a part of that business shift was a complete shift away from Custom Crush. Um, and so that's, not all, everyone there was like, okay, what do we do with our wines? Um, and Meg Ruley of Flip Turn Cellars, her and I are really close friends, and we made our wines together last year as well. So her, Kevin, and I kind of like huddled together on like a lot of our projects. Um, in addition to the three of us also working on the Apolloni wines and the other client wines that Apolloni was making that year. Um, and so Meg and myself are moving to a new facility this fall um, in Milwaukee that is called AVP. It's this new big facility that's opening up that's kind of like gonna be a new incubator for smaller wineries, which is very, very exciting. Um, and Kevin's going somewhere else, but um, we were like, now we're in this kind of big moving phase together that's kind of making us separate a little bit. So that support system of having Kevin there is a little like, not having that there this year will be a little nerve wracking, but I know um, I have a great team of people that I'll be working with this year, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of interesting. That's when I also changed jobs. So I, I now work full-time in digital marketing for wineries. I work at a, a advertising agency. Um, so I full-time now do like paid uh, digital advertising, like Facebook, Instagram, Google, um, and then like email marketing and strategy for luxury brands. So um, I work with like a handful of wineries in Oregon, some in California, some in Washington, and one in New York, um, which is a whole nother like world of wine that going from like family owned smaller estate winery to like 
helping some of like the largest producers in Oregon with marketing and like in, in working with Napa wineries now uh, was kind of a huge just like shift in my like knowledge and I've, I've learned a crazy amount of stuff just since I've been there uh, in the beginning of March of this year. Um, but yeah, it's this, this year's kind of like set up for going into harvest is just kind of completely different. Um, I have a different job. I'm not like at the winery every day working so I can, because I was very lucky that like I could be doing my regular job and it's like, oh, I need to like go to a punch down real quick and like take care of my wines. Whereas this year I'm like actively like, okay, I'm going to be waking up at five and like working for a few hours at the winery and then like going and doing my job and then coming back. And the benefit of that though, is I'm just focusing on my wines this year. I don't have to like work two other days of, on other people's wines to make that happen. So um, that's the nice thing is I can completely put my winemaking energy into just my own things. Um, and I can spend a lot more time being strategic on what I want to do with the fruit and stuff in a different way this year. Um, but it's definitely a whole nother setup to like go into a new space. And um, <laughs> I feel bad for Meg because she's had to move a lot. And this will be my first time like moving because last year was my first vintage. Um, and so going in to that whole moving process and like moving equipment and trying to figure out what all the gaps are in a new space and learn as a crew because there's about I think eight or nine of us moving into this space in the fall and it's going to be new for all of us um, and the facility has like a 500 ton capacity for harvest which is insane um, and we're I think we're, we're supposed to be at like 100 tons I think for this year but it's going to be 100 tons in a brand new winery with like all new equipment and like all new people that we've never made wine together and um, which is exciting it's kind of fun but um, in terms of like the support of like actual like winemaking assistance, like having that shift from like being under a winemaker to like kind of having to like go out on my own in, in some context with a whole new crew of support. Thankfully, like my Meg is moving with me, which is great. Cause I'm like, okay, at least someone will be there that like I completely have worked with before, which is really helpful. And Meg and I collaborated on a wine last year that we made together. Um, and so we are glad to be moving together, which was a big factor in us choosing to move where we did. We we're like, oh, we should stick together on this. Um, but yeah, and, and, and it's really challenged me this year to really prepare myself for, for harvest in, in terms of like winemaking knowledge because I do not have any formal training in winemaking. And a lot of people don't, surprisingly, because uh, you'll be talking to people, you're like, oh, you don't, you don't really know what's going on there. Okay, cool, like it turned out great, that's awesome. Um, and so there's that kind of element to my wine experience that's a lot of, not necessarily guessing, but like informed guessing where it's like, okay, I have a general idea of what's supposed to happen here. And um, that also kind of leans into why I really enjoy low intervention winemaking so much, because you really don't need to know a bunch about how to manipulate wine. Like it can do its thing on its own and turn out like pretty good most of the time. And there are more risks, in, but you know, you can identify those risks a lot easier and mitigate for those reasons and, and be more prepared to understand what to do in certain circumstances. But I know there's kind of like a dichotomy of like whether or not like additives are okay or what the expression equals and like the whole like if you're bringing in yeast from a commercialized product like that's yeast strains from somewhere else that doesn't really come from like your terroir like all that kind of conversation which to me just seems really like unnecessary like wine is wine is wine and like it can taste good and like there is that market obviously for people that want to get that deep but some people really don't care and I don't think that's a problem and I think there's often like part of that stigma is that like some people care enough for all of us that they're like the loudest voice. Um, and that's where some of the like that more heated discussion comes in on like what 
what the ethos behind natural, natural wine really is and, and the importance of it versus conventional wines. Um, and I'm lucky that I've had the chance to make a lot of conventional wine and natural wine and kind of like the line in between. And that was a great thing about working with Kevin too is he, he has a, a general philosophy that kind of toes the line. And so having that mix of like crayons to play with when it comes to like blending time and you're like, okay, cool. These three lots were needed ferments and these two were inoculated and we have these different clones and giving yourself variety to play with versus being like, everything gets inoculated with these two yeast strains, like falling down that rabbit hole has been really interesting. And I, I try to toe that line a little bit myself, but more on the end of low intervention. Um, whereas like, so like this year, like I think two out of three of my um, ferments were completely native. One of them just got stuck because of low nutrient content. So I had to get kicked back into gear. Um, but the only other additives I used were like organically derived yeast, yeast nutrients, um, which is normally seen as kind of an okay additive in the natural wine community most of the time. Um, and then everything was filtered, which was another decision that I made for just stability. Cause um, even though I want to make these wines with low intervention, I want them to be shelf stable and like easy to like procure and enjoy and, and not feel like it's like, oh, I need to like drink these within a month and like make sure they're constantly at temperature. That way nothing happens. And um, kind of towing that line has been what I've been trying to play with this year. And um, especially as I've been looking at production for this year and what I'm bringing in. And um, one of the like hot topics in my, in my own self dialogue has been uh, Blanc de Blanc sparkling and traditional method sparkling. And I was like, well, there's not really a good way to make traditional method sparkling without using like commercial yeast. Um, and so it's like, that's, that product's just gonna be different. And it's just, and that's okay. It can be different. Like things can be different and like you can have that dichotomy happening within one brand. And most of the time customers don't necessarily always care too much about that. And as long as you're not like lying about it, like that's fine. Um, Cause some people like, it's just like, oh yeah, well this was made naturally, but it also has like all these things. And you're like, okay, just cause it's native ferment and you add all these things, you can't just say like one part of the story. Um, and I'm completely open about like what's in everything. And obviously like laws are starting to change that like ingredients might be on label soon and all these things, which I think is great just cause it's more transparent. And like, I had no idea what went into wine until I was like actively at harvest opening bags of things that were going into wine. I was like, oh wow, like all this stuff is going in here and not necessarily bad things, but just the fact that there were more things happening than just grape juice, um, which, I'm sure there's like a level of like blissful ignorance there where some people just don't want to know. Um, but then there's people fighting kind of the, the marketing side of things where some brands are like, there's zero, like uh, there's like larger, like corporate brands being like zero sugar added wine. You're like, well, yeah, like most wine doesn't have sugar added to it. Um, and I think that's also like a catalyst for where that like more heated discussion comes in and where technicalities versus like actual like winemaking decisions come into like how we market wines. Um, and some people make natural wines, but don't talk about it, which is also a very valid stance. And they're just like, oh yeah, that's just how I make my wines. And it's not like a, a pillar of my brand. Whereas for me, like the, the big pillar of my brand is that these wines are crafted in like a low intervention mindset but still made to be enjoyed by almost everyone that would want to drink wine. And that they're not like these crazy, like umami bomb, like orange wines. Like there are, like my plan this year is to make an orange wine that's just gonna be nice and easy to drink and like fruit forward, but still have like a layer of complexity from being an orange wine, but it's probably gonna be filtered. Like it's gonna be filtered and it's gonna be a more approachable experience because of that um, versus it being like 
a clear bottle of orange wine that has like a bunch of stuff floating in it, it looks like kombucha, which is also a valid expression of wine that I personally am like purchasing and enjoying. Um, and as a consumer myself, like I really enjoy that stuff and that's the stuff I actively seek out, but not everyone enjoys that. And so for me, my personal preference of like having that lower intervention wine, but also making it a consumer product that people are actually gonna wanna buy and enjoy and be like a sustainable business for me, um, is, is finding that in between. And so far, I've, I've in the few months that I've been selling my wines already, there's been really great feedback there that it's, it's a good niche to be in, both because there's a lot of interest in that type of wine, but also some people are interested but get intimidated and don't wanna purchase those wines because they're not, I guess not afraid, but like they, they feel like they're not far enough into the community to then appreciate or feel like they have like access to those wines or, and a lot of those wines are hard to get sometimes just because of the, the industry. Most of us people in the industry actively seeking out those wines. So um, when it comes to just like my winemaking style overall, that's kind of where I'm coming from. It's just like, how do I make these things that people want to drink but make them in a way that like feels good at the end of the day that like I'm not like throwing a bunch of stuff into my wines and covering up what's there. Um, and sometimes like that's not very successful. Like I had one wine this year that I went out to be, I was like, oh, we're gonna make this like a super like bright, fruity, easy drinking, it's like sparkling wine. And it got a little funky and a little cool, which is, it's a great tasting wine, but it's not originally what I set out to make because of like that low intervention mindset, it just it turned into what it turned into. And that wine is still really fun and tasty, but it's not originally what I'd set out to do. Um, which thankfully it was like one of the five wines that I made last year. I was like, okay, like that's a good batting average for the first year. Um, but going into this year, I'm, I'm making a lot different decisions in terms of like methods of making sparkling wine and, and things to kind of support that journey and guide the wines a little bit differently there without, necessarily like inoculating that wine to make sure that the certain fruit flavors are farther out in the palate or things like that. But like this year, I'm probably gonna force carbonate a lot of my sparkling wines because it's a lot easier to control a wine or guide a wine um, to become sparkling when it's able to be like completely fermented without being in a bottle. Cause I made pet nat last year and that can be really unpredictable. Cause you can be like, oh, I'm really happy with how this juice is tasting. You throw it in there and then a lot can happen in those like few months that it finishes fermenting in bottle. Um, and so this year it's like, okay, I'm just gonna make some really good base wine and then like carbonate it. And it's gonna taste really good and it's gonna be fun. And no one cares if it's traditional method or Charmant method. And cause um, luckily Apple also had a chance to see a lot of different sparkling production. And um, while Charmant method's really fun, it's also very intimidating to do. Cause you're like, okay, this is a big metal pressurized like tank of wine um, that could be a little bit out of reach for like smaller producers to make. It's just equipment alone. Um, and then I also have made Petnat and then I've, we also did forced carbonated sparkling. Um, and forced carbonated sparkling is really good because it's just like good wine that's sparkling and fruity and easy to drink and fun. And um, I'm not here to like make the next like premier crew burgundy, like that's not what I'm here to do. And um, that's not what like the customer base that I've started to acquire really wants. Because um, wine's expensive, like all, like anything that's in that like higher tier luxury market is just really unattainable to like a large, like chunk of my generation that's getting into wine now, at least for the next like probably 10 years while we're all like growing our careers and like starting to like hopefully make money if like the economy isn't like crazy, but um, making wines that are of that same ethos, but affordable and fun and like not necessarily like party wines, but like wines you wanna bring over to friends and like open at dinner and um, and that's, honestly, like the whole, like every time I make a decision, it's just like, well, like 
what's the outcome of this going to be? And like, does that then like equal the wines that I want to be putting out there? Um, and I've had a lot of support from other winemakers who there have a similar ethos too. And um, that's been like the really good part about the community here in Oregon is there's just so much support for like across the industry of all types of people. And um, I was lucky that like being in a custom crush like related facility that was also in a state winery brought in a lot of those people too. Um, and you're just constantly building new connections and uh, meeting new people that have similar mindsets of winemaking or completely different mindsets of winemaking, which is really fun because um, I make piquette as well, which is um, like rehydrated grape pumice after pressing it and making it into another wine. And a couple of the people that made wine alongside me did not understand it, did not want to understand it. But then they taste it and they're like, ah, I get it. And you're like, see, this is fun. Like it's, and the, these are people that were very much down the conventional route of winemaking and didn't really want to hear the other stuff. Because I'd be like, oh yeah, they're like, they're like, oh, I'm gonna do this, this, and this, and this. I'm like, oh yeah, it, that barrel's just gonna hang out for a while. I'm just like, it's just gonna sit over there. And they're like, you're not gonna do this, this, and this. I was like, mm, no. <laughs> and they were like, okay, well, like, I'm surprised you're making that decision. Boop, 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 boop. And you're like, okay, well, like, let's talk after harvest when we, we have all our wines. And like, then you can see why I made that decision. Um, and a couple of them ended up making their own piquettes afterwards. Like, this is really fun. I was like, see, it can just be fun. Like, it can just be something that we're doing for fun. And um, I was lucky that piquettes have really taken off in my brand. And there's a big, like, influx on the market of those types of wines. And um, a lot of producers are kind of looking at that and starting to make them. And so, I was a little like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen when I actually release these wines, but um, it's been really fun. I poured at a big rosé festival that um, I poured at like two months ago. It was like my first like actual big like public uh, pouring at event, and I poured my Pinot Noir rosé and a Gamay Piquette, which was similar like rosé light, lighter style. And people love the Piquette, and they're like, let's go off the traditional route, like let's go into the cool, weird, funky, natural wine stuff, and. Even that product, like, it's filtered. It's a still piquette. It's not sparkling. It's really kind of a weird piquette in the first place. And so um, getting such great feedback that people are like, oh yeah, this, like, this easy, fun, fruity drinking that's low alcohol, and like, that's appealing to them. Um, and so that's, after harvest, I was like, those piquettes were a lot of work. I'm not making them again. And then I'm like, people like them. I guess I'm making them again, um, which is part of that fun part about launching wines into the world is not having that context of like what has worked in the past. It's like we're starting from scratch here and like seeing what happens and seeing what people actually want to buy from the brand. And like I only made 25 cases of rosé. It was like one of the smallest portions of my production. And I'm already down to five cases like two months in. I'm like, I should have made a lot more rosé and a lot less sparkling. And you're like, okay, well now this year I get to like make that decision differently, <clears throat> which is the fun part of it. Um, but also like the terrifying part of it and being a new producer is like, that's kind of the name of the game is just constantly trying to guess what the next thing is. But um, yeah, and, and the winemaking has been a big chunk of that. It's just figuring out what the next steps are and what the styles I want to continue to work with are. And especially having more control this year with fruit, like last year my fruit kind of showed up when it showed up. And um, I had some, I had great people helping me like get that fruit, but I wasn't the person making decisions. And so this year I'm making a lot more decisions, which feels like I have more control. I'm sure it's just like some like idea of control, um, but like the fruit I'm bringing in is really exciting this year. And I'm making great new relationships this year with growers to bring in the fruit that I want to work with. And all my fruits life certified this year, which is exciting because I want to bring in like good input, good output. Like I want to bring in good fruit um, that's going to make the wines that are going to be of quality that don't need as much help in the winery as some other uh, fruit might need. Um, 
And so I'm making a lot more rosé this year because I don't have enough. Um, and I'm making a little bit, I'm making a different sparkling program this year. Um, and I'm working on my first red this year. I didn't make any reds last year, mostly out of the business decision of I didn't want to have to wait to sell anything. Because um, I have some other friends that have started brands that are like, yeah, I spent three years making wine until I could actually release it. And it's like, that sounds miserable. And it sounds like a lot of money. And I don't have a lot of money. Um, and so I said, let's make whites and rosés this year and sell them and then try to continue to build that business over time versus like, I'm gonna throw $20,000 in to make a bunch of like Cabernet from Washington or um, some random big Pinots and, and buy a bunch of new oak and things. And I was like, I'm gonna make like nice whites and rosés. They're gonna go neutral oak or stainless steel, like nothing too crazy. And they're gonna be bottled and consumed within the first year and hopefully, um, and then move on to other projects and, and use that funds to kind of support the, the growth of the business. because. I don't have the time or the money to like just dump a bunch of stuff in and like hope it works out. Um, and I think that's a big through line for a lot of like winemakers of my kind of like generation that are coming up is we all have like full-time jobs and then it's a lot of us in the industry and then trying to like build our own journey on the side. And because for me, like the context of Z wines, I'm like, okay, I'm thinking like what's the 10 year plan to like eventually make this a thing versus like some people like in the pioneering years of Oregon wine where it's just like, oh yeah, we just came here and we're doing it. And you're like, that's nice. I'm so happy for you that like you just found a vid or like a found property to plant fruit on. And um, it's a very different like e economical climate and just like the industry climate is, is a whole new world. And um, now that we're seeing like multiple generations now of those wineries kind of moving through and um, getting a bit more established there, newer guys on the scene were kind of like, okay, like what's the path forward? and do we do we try to plant our own vineyards? But then it's like thirty thousand dollars an acre to plant a vineyard, and you're like, okay, well, like no one has that money just like lying around, and I don't want to take out hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for my like two hundred case winery, like it makes no sense. Um, and so for me, it's the the vision for like the future of Z Lines. I'm really lucky to have kind of like a family base in Tillamook, which is great, and obviously that's not the valley, and that's not like necessarily the ideal place to grow wine grapes, but. There's, <laughs> this sounds terrible, but there's opportunities with climate change that like things might happen, that, that that's a, the, the climate looks a lot different. Um, and so like long-term like plans to maybe test some, some test vines um, over on the coast and see what those look like. And um, one of my wines, um, my reserve Riesling is named after my, my parents' house that they bought about a year ago, close to my grandparents to be kind of closer to my dad's parents. Um, and it's Valley View, so it's a, but like right when you get into Tillamook, there's like all those mountains and there's like all that open farmland and then you get to like town and then the coast, and like the bay and stuff. That whole like farmland before that is, you, people just drive through that. And for me, that's when I think of the coast, that's what I think of is like the farmland, like family. Um, and I was like, that's very much the ethos of like kind of the Z Wines thing. It's just like, it's, it's this like kind of unseen, like untapped thing that is just really special, but some people just kind of like drive past it. Um, and for me, that's just kind of been like where family's always been. And so long term, I'm, I'm hoping that one day that that's where the home base will be eventually for the brand, if there is like ever like a physical presence anywhere. I mean, the first time I like started pouring my wine publicly, everyone's like, where's your tasting room? And I was like, um, I, I need like 100 cases of wine. I have like $2, like what are you talking about? I'm not like opening a tasting room. Um, and it's and explaining to customers the idea of like, I'm kind of like a floating winery, like I make wine places and I pop up and then you can buy my wine on the internet, which is fun. Um, and, and looking at that long-term plan of just like what a physical presence looks like, but then 
is that necessary to run a successful business? And what the future of a wine business looks like is also interesting. And Custom Crush and all these other like smaller wineries are just growing immensely. And there's so many of us. And, and it's interesting to think that all of us are going to eventually have like tasting rooms. It just doesn't seem like the right trajectory. And we have a great like system of like events and festivals and things where all of us get a chance to pour for the public. But um, it's an I guess it is an access issue. Where it's like how we get people these wines in front of them and the whole distribution system is a whole nother like beast to tackle to get your wines in front of people and um, it almost seems like <laughs> it seems like the line's always moving like once you get into one place things happen or whatever and sometimes that's like six bottles and you're like cool I spent three months getting these like six bottles into one store that like maybe one person's gonna look at um, which can be kind of defeating when like you sell wine and trying to do that, especially on top of like other things you're doing, like when you don't have time to sit and spend like 40 hours a week trying to get your wine places, it, it becomes another level of like difficulty. Um, but there is like some resilience there, like you made it happen in, in under those circumstances, which is I think why the, the, the smaller brands like, like that that are still around are around because they have been resilient through that and that's what made them the great producers they are. Um, and I think that's setting the stage for like what the next the next like phase of the industry looks like because it's Oregon's kind of getting to a point now where there's these established producers and then kind of like a gap in there because people are like oh yeah like those guys are doing their thing and then now there's this kind of wave below that that's coming up and a lot of us have worked at those established wineries or are currently working at established wineries and trying to figure out what the opportunity is because I think identifying the opportunity is the next step and I'm sure there are people that have think that they've already identified that. I'm not aware of what people have thought of yet, but um, I know for me, like what I'm thinking about what what's next, it's just like, oh, well, is that a physical location or like, is that not necessary to run a successful winery these days? Or do I need to open, like have my own production facility one day? Or does it make sense to continue working in a shared facility? And does the romance of having your own winery on your property with your own vineyard really the key to success in storytelling for, and, th and this is more on the marketing side of things, is that the key to success when it comes to selling a wine, when you can put estate grown, estate made, all these things that are kind of like big buzzwords for the non, for the, the wine consumer that doesn't necessarily know how that differentiates a product. They're just like, oh yeah, it makes sense, like a seeker that like I wanted that product because it's more of a closed system. Whereas like people like me have the opportunity to buy fruit from established vineyards and make it somewhere else and or find new fruit. Like the one of the vineyards I'm buying from this year is a very, very young vineyard that I'm getting the chance to work with as it's being developed and there's an exciting opportunity there, but I'm not gonna put like, hey, this is a brand new vineyard on the label because some people have a stigma against younger vines. And so um, there's just so many different roads to go down there and whether that's like a winemaking like pivot or like a retail location pivot or like a marketing storytelling pivot, it's like all the open possibilities, which for me is great because then I can just sit around and think about all the different possibilities and then one day make a decision. But um, it's, it's interesting and, and I think looking at what the bigger, like bigger wineries and, and larger conglomerates now, because now things are getting bought up um, as well and how that shifts the industry specifically in Oregon. Um, I'm lucky now that I get to immerse myself a lot in Napa and I'd never been at all like interested in learning about Napa just because I was so like Oregon, yeah, like I'm from here, it makes sense, like let's d dive deep here. Um, and now that I'm working with a couple of like really, really well-established wineries in Napa and learning kind of what their thoughts are around how like the industry is changing and for their version of the industry, because like the, <laughs> I got to go to Napa for the first time in March um, and like 
they have the same amount of wineries in like Napa County as we have like in Oregon, which is like kind of wild to see how like condensed everything is. And so you can get a bigger, a much quicker crash course in the industry because it's just more distilled down. Um, and to see like all the big names of all of the, like the major wineries, like you're driving by, like it was uh, kind of funny because the person I was with was from Napa who was like driving around. We drove by Robert Mondavi and like I saw like the big arch. I was like, it's like seeing like the castle at Disneyland for the first time. You're like, oh my gosh, it's like a real place. Um, and so like seeing all those landmarks like all kind of around each other and, and thinking about how like with Oregon, we have like some really good condensed areas that aren't necessarily turning into Napa, but it's interesting to see that development of those like longer term brands and, and the established things and looking at Napa of like, well, what are there like small producers looking like? And it's very similar. There's a lot of winemakers that have their own little side projects. And um, I think that'll continue to be obviously a big part of the industry, but um, it'll be fun to see how other other locations tend to track like that too. And um, like the Finger Lakes in New York, there's so much natural wine and um, great low intervention producers there that are growing and it's cool to see what's happening there. And um, yeah, it's just, it's always changing, which is great. Um, but for some people that's really intimidating and, and one, it turns them off from like wanting to produce wine. But thankfully for me, like I like that challenge. Um, but that's a very long answer about my winemaking <laughs> thoughts. Um, well, tell me about the, I'm curious, obviously you've talked a lot about kind of um, the decisions along the way and the, and the, and the, the, the kind of different roads you could take. I, I'm, I'm curious about once you got to the point where you had wine and it had your name on it and you had it in a bottle and you had it in front of people, what's the feeling like? How, how, did, how did it feel to pour wine for people? How does it feel to present a wine to the world that you've made? It's a very out of body experience because it's like when you write an essay and you're like, I've spent, uh, like, uh, when I wrote my dissertation, I'm like, I spent a year and a half like thinking about this very like small thing. And then like you put it in front of someone like to get their feedback, you're like, okay, it's like having a child. Um, Cause you're just like, Ah, I made this thing and like, I don't really want negative feedback, just tell me good things. Um, which, <laughs> I, when that's one of the things like in the cellar when we were like getting close to like filtering and bottling and stuff, we, we were doing some different like tasting panels, like all the different winemakers. And I was just like, I'm gonna be very clear I cannot take criticism today. Just tell me the good things and then we'll move on and I will address the other things later. Um, but I've been very lucky that my, my family's been a big part of producing the wines and um, there's, there's some great pictures of my lovely grandmother who is a very, very small person um, with like a big magnum of rosé that she's filling, um, which is like some of the best memories now too is like having my family involved with this and um, kind of bringing that product forward. It's just like, yeah, this is like not only just like my vision, but supported by everyone, like in not only my, like my wine community, but like my family. And um, it felt really cool, like pouring those wines for the first time and like talking about them because I've talked about other people's wines so much. And like I've done so many like offsite events pouring other people's wines and you get like the spiel that you get talk about all the time. And you're like, okay, this is the family. This is the property. This is the blah, blah, blah. This is how this wine is made. And then like I hadn't really taken the moment to think about that until like we were about to start pouring and I went, what am I gonna say about these wines? Like, what do I, what do I talk about? Um, and for me, it's, uh, I definitely go brand forward because I think for me, the brand informs my wines more than the other way around. Um, and so a big part of how I want the brand to be perceived is that it's really open to everyone. And, and kind of like the tagline for Z Wines is Oregon wines for everyone. Um, and so I kind of start there. It's just like, hey, I'm, this is the type of wines 
I want to make. I want to make fun wines that are easy to drink, but like crafted sustainably. Um, and people really immediately came back with like really positive feedback about that like kind of brand mission. Um, not just like the people at this event, but like the industry. There was like about 35 wineries at this event, so we got to chat with a lot of people. And um, being brand new, everyone's like, "Hey, you're new. What's going on here?" And, or, "Hey, I know you. You've been pouring for other people. What's going on here? Is that you?" And you're like, "What's happening? Or did you get a new job?" But it's like, "Yes, but also." Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity there to just get like general feedback about the brand and. Um, it's very important for me that like people of all types of communities feel that they can access the wines and not just like in like be able to purchase them, but also to feel seen in a brand that wants to be inclusive of all people. Um, and I feel like labeling specifically, even though labels can really be like a lot of people buy wine just based off the label and I'm not necessarily trying to get into that market where I'm just trying to make a cool label for people to buy it, but make labels that people can go, oh yeah, that like looks like me and my friends having a great time and like that's an affordable bottle of wine that I feel like is great for this scenario. And um, I was really lucky to work with a local artist, Colby Brooks, to, to create the illustrations that are uh, on the labels for 2022. And um, we actively just said, hey, how do we make these people like really neutral in terms of just like race, gender, expressions, like how do we just make a person versus like a group of women or a group of men or a group of people, like how do we just make them people? Um, and, and I feel like we did a fairly good job at achieving that and immediately people were just like, oh yeah, like these are really approachable, like fun labels that everyone can like put themselves in. Like the label for my rosé is literally a person like sitting in sweatpants on the, ch the chair with like a couple of bottles of wine and like a couple glasses around them just hanging out. And it's just this nice illustration of just like, how I want to enjoy rosé. I just want to like go chill out and like drink rosé. I don't want to like go to a fancy wine dinner and like break out a bunch of like Provence rosés, which I love Provence, but um, all that stuff. It's it's finding that way to give people a vision into what I'm trying to do for them, um, and specifically based off like how I want my friends to enjoy my wines. And it was really fun because. Like a week after bottling, um, I hadn't labeled yet because um, I had to hand bottle this year, which is a whole other um, interview. But um, yeah, 120 cases hand labeled and hand bottled this year. Um, but I remember having like the shiners, like all the unlabeled bottles, and like taking over like the first bottle, like my friend's house. And um, one of our friends had it was kind of like an emergency friend call. She had just gotten broken up with, and it was like, "Hey, friends, let's gather." And I was like, "I just bottled all my wines that I've been talking about for two years. So you guys want to drink some wine?" And so we had like Costco pizza and a bottle of my rosé, and like that was like the first time a bottle got opened. And um, it was just like I was like, "This is why I did this. Like this is why I made these wines." Um, and it was really cool to kind of get that like almost instant feedback after bottling. Um, but now it's kind of in the um, the stage of like okay like that initial like influx happened like on release month like there's that kind of initial excitement um, and I think I captured a, a good amount of that which is good but there's obviously a, a lot farther to go in terms of like just general sales I mean I, part of like my parents not being a part of the industry is I have to explain to them every once in a while it's like you make all that wine and then you have a year or two to like get it sold like it doesn't all get sold like immediately um, and I usually have to tell them that to remind myself that like it doesn't all have to get sold immediately um, but I was really lucky so Portland State I was just I'm an alumni of Portland State they have an alumni wine club where then they buy wines from alumni owned or connected wineries from Portland State and there's about like a hundred club members um, and they all receive a shipment of wines twice a year made from Portland State alumni and so I was really, really lucky that I, they uh, selected me for their spring shipment. So the, the like a week after I actually released my wines, that club shipment went out too, which was really awesome. 
Um, and then I'm really lucky to be in a good set of events this summer. Um, obviously, the Pride Month, I'm at a lot of Pride-focused events, which is really exciting. Um, I have one this weekend, and then the week after that, and then the weekend after that, um, which <laughs> takes up a lot of time, but which is really the exciting part of um, being kind of one of these wineries that floats around and does events, is that you have a lot of opportunities to go and do things like that. Um, and that's kind of been the, the trial ground for the brand recently. It's just like, okay, like let's put these in front of people. And um, but like definitely having that first chance of like talking through the wine with someone, I was just like, I I made it. Here you go. And you're like, uh, what do I talk about? Um, and thankfully, uh, my sister actually went and poured with me at that event. And it's nice to have, like, have your hype person like there to be able to talk for you and like consolidate a little bit, which is very helpful. Um, and so having that, and that was also she's also not in the industry, and that was her first time ever pouring wine like in public ever. Like she's not like a huge wine person, so I also was, like seeing that um, family involvement is really fun too. But um, yeah, it was just kind of a wild time being like, I made something. Please enjoy it. Thank you so much. Um, but getting the chance to talk about like that brand mission and and talking through like the label design because people are like oh these labels are like really eye catching and you're like oh hey here's all the purpose behind that it's not just like meant to be something that's gonna like oh I want to buy that at the grocery store it's the cool label um, like there really is intention behind that and that's what I'm excited about too with like round two this year and obviously pr like progressive years as well is like how do we hone in on that how do we optimize like what we can do with a label versus just like something that captures like what the wine is, but captures like who we want to be um, able to enjoy them. Because it goes back to like the W set stuff, like I don't need to take a class to learn how to read a label and like figure out what's going on. And so I'm like actively like how do we like take as like how do we put as little information on the label as possible? It's like it's rosé of Pinot Noir. And it's like perfect. I know what it is. And then you can flip over the back label, it tells you where it's from and all that fun stuff, but like just making it as easy and as accessible as possible and um that's also yeah, part of like the dichotomy of like what wines I want to make in the future is like um, this year, I'm, I have some Pinot Meunier contracted for Rosé, which is really cool and exciting, but like Pinot Meunier is obviously not like a super big commercialized grape that people really know about. Um, and so it's finding ways to then educate, but not make these wines something that's going to be something that has to like learn a bunch to like enjoy. And so it's going to be Rosé, and people are going to know it's Rosé. Um, and the Pinot Meunier is kind of like that next level down that people are interested in learning about. Um, but still finding ways to make those cool wines that are then still approachable, like taking a step back and going, what does a person actually need to know about this wine before they want to crack it open? Or like if they're at the store and there's not an attendant, they're like, tell them what's going on. Like, how do you make it as easy as possible for someone to understand what's going on? And while I think a lot of people do that, it can really get cluttered with um, information, like just like text, and like then you kind of fall into the world where like a brand has a label and it's just each label just has the different wine on it, which I don't find appealing. Like I want to have these wines that have their own unique identities, um, which also costs more because you're doing like another label for everything you make. But um, finding that like that intention template to like go into making each of those labels is kind of where I'm trying to find a rhythm as well, and that helps then with communicating the brand to new people. Um, but so far, like I've been lucky enough to like personally have talked to every person that's purchased wine so far, and like have a chance to like hand over wine or like pour them some wine, which is not sustainable, obviously, in, in the long term. And like hopefully, you're getting to a volume where people are just buying wine all the time, which is fun. Um, but now it's like kind of looking at like what what I can do to best present the wines to people when I'm not there, um, and that. Thankfully, it's kind of what I do full time on my real job is marketing and communications work. And so um, I'm very lucky that 
that is my like resource for myself is that the marketing side of things is a lot easier for me, uh, or at least it's easier for me to kind of dive into that where um, some of my fellow like contemporaries are like, I don't know anything about marketing. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's the one thing I know how to do. So if you can help me with like figuring out what I'm gonna do when I press this, I will help you with like marketing stuff. Um, which goes to show like how collaborative the community is too. It's just like we all have different skill sets and we're able to share those, which is why a lot of these smaller wineries have so much success because we really have a really great community around us that we support each other. Like um, Vivian Kennedy of Ram Sellers loaned me her labeler when I needed to label all my wines. So I was like, I was like, I need a labeler. Like I can't figure out how I'm gonna label all these wines, and I don't have three thousand dollars to buy like an automatic labeler. Also, would be like doing these all by hand. Um, she's like, you can borrow mine. I was like, oh, okay, thanks. Um, and so there's like a really great community there of just like saving a lot of money by like helping each other, which is a big part of producing wine. It's, it just takes a lot of money and um, it's kind of been seen as like a rich white guy sport that like, oh yeah, like if you want to make a million dollars making wine, you start with two million dollars, like whatever. It's like, it's like all that stuff and trying to be a bit more boots on the ground doing the work and trying to make something happen. Um, and not just for like the, the joy of making wine, but like honestly as like a option for like my livelihood in the future. Like I definitely see myself working towards one day, and, and, and that seems farther and farther away every day I think about it, but like one day that being my full-time thing is, is making my own wines and running my own brand. Um, and, and not from just like a, I'm not just like making wine for funsies. Like there is like a, a mission to it, and on top of like the mission of the actual brand to provide a product that I think was a gap, that there's not, not necessarily these, like these lower invention wines that are accessible to people to drink that like are actually like taste good to them or like they can see themselves in that label or um, they don't feel intimidated by how the packaging is or something so well wow well, last question for you then because you've like, again you've answered pretty much all the questions that we had prepared um you've talked about the future and obviously a lot a lot of a lot of possibilities a lot of potential um give me an idea of uh sort of a goal is there an end goal is there a, is there a size in mind is there a, is there something you're kind of aiming for outside of having perhaps a space in terms of where you feel like you will have sort of made it? Um, yeah, well, for context between this last year and this year, so I made about 125 cases last year. Um, I'm on track to make about 300 cases this year, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and that already feels like landing somewhere new, which is exciting. Um, in abstract terms, like I'd love to be able to make enough wine to like have the same income I have now and like be able to do wine full time and whatever picture that looks like of what like location looks like or whatever, um, which is probably closer to like 1,000, 2,000 cases because then there's more costs that come along with selling that much wine. Um, but yeah, I think eventually I really do have like a vision for a physical space of some sort that is wine focused, not necessarily like a tasting room, but some type of like place where my wines are um, and I feel like when I get to that point, I'll be full-time in the in the business, which would be great. Um, yeah, I just want to make enough wine to like live off of and then have a good time. Like I, I definitely, I want to be comfortable. Like I think a big thing for me is like having, uh, like owning a house and that's like my next like big like personal goal is like having my own place to live and um, all that. And I'm very lucky right now that I get to live with my sister who's amazing. Um, but like long-term it's just like, yeah, like finding like a nest, I'm a big like nester hoster person, like I wanna have my space. Um, and I think if I can have a, a business that supports that, then like that's the dream. Uh, just to be able to like 
host and have fun. And like that's also like why I got into wine. It's just like I enjoy like throwing parties and having my friends over. And I wanted to make wines that kind of fit that that vision. And so um, I think that would be great one day. Just like make wine, sell wine, and like throw a bunch of parties and like have fun and like have dinner with my friends. Um, and thankfully, like a lot of my friends are actively interested in being uh, involved with that. And like I've had a lot of friends that have volunteered their time to help me make my wines and. Um, one of my friends is really into agriculture. Is like, hey, if you ever want to plant a vineyard, like, I want to be a part of that with you. And um, like, there's all these different aspects of like involving my friends in that, which is really exciting too. And I really rely on my community of friends. As like, I'm really lucky that I have a great family and a community of friends. Um, and a lot of my community of friends don't have that family aspect, which makes me even more want to invest in them as like my people. Um, and that's a big thing, like in the queer community in general. Is like. We all have like our chosen family members that kind of support that vision of what we want to do in the future. Um, and I'm lucky to have been kind of absorbed into some of that in the wine industry's version of that. Like um, Remy Wines has been, she's been a huge, huge supporter of like just building new pathways for people to kind of get into the industry in a new way. Um, and I'm excited I'm pouring at her winery in a couple weeks for the Queer Wine Fest. And um, it kind of reflects in my personal life as well with like how I want to support my friends and my community there. And I think, yeah, if, if I'm able to do that on my own accord with my, my brand, like that would be amazing. But I'm also not opposed to like having a normal job and continue to do wine on the side if it's never grows past a certain point. Cause like if the community or like the industry at large doesn't want to like buy that much of my wine, like I'm not going to make it. And like, I'm not going to force myself to like become a big, huge winery if that's just not the destiny for the wines. Um, but it'd be great. It'd be really fun. I'd really appreciate it. But yeah, we'll see. I think my, Current vision is like to keep doing the way it is for like the next five years at least, and then kind of assess what like money looks like there, because um, all driven by money obviously. But what happens in the future and what you're able to afford to do, and I really don't want to take out any like big major debts for the business at all, just because I don't want to have to have that be what's anchoring down like the pricing of my wines, because I really want to price things affordably as much as I can, or close, not having crazy margins, like sometimes costs just go up. Like this year, costs are gonna go up. I have a new facility, I have new fruit, more costs, and so costs are just gonna go up a little bit. Um, and that's just the inevitability of the industry. But the goal would be that like, those are completely controllable factors by myself about what I choose to purchase and what I choose not to do. Versus like, well, we have a mortgage for this tasting room, we need to make sure the wines at least cost this much because we're tied to this, this debt. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully like in five years, I can assess and see what that kind of vision looks like again. But um, yeah, hopefully like five to 10 years from now, it'd be great to like be just doing Z wines, but happy to see what happens. It's gonna be fun to look back on this in 10 years and be like, wow, I was so excited and I was so like ready for the future, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, you could look back on it from a number of different angles at that point, so that'll be exciting. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? No, I think we covered a lot. Covered a lot. Like I said, I'm a talker, so I can just talk forever about everything, so. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. It makes my job a lot easier. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us, sharing your taking the time to be part of our project, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.